0: Whether it's poured in the lab or inspected in the field, lava is undeniably a hot topic. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and on today's Physics Central podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the fascinating physics of lava flows to find out how they work, what it's like to study them, and what they can tell us about the earth beneath our feet. Lava is really cool in the awesome sense of the word. Dr. Elise Rumpf is a postdoctoral scholar at Columbia University's Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory, and lava is kind of her thing.
1: It's really just exciting to be in the presence of an active lava flow, or a recently place lava flow, just to be able to see new rock being created, or see a piece of land that was never there before. You know, walking across this lava flow, around this lava flow, you realize that you're the first person to step on this piece of earth and that this piece of earth is only six months old. And to me, that's just a really cool concept.
0: No pun intended. But aside from the cool factor, what does lava tell us about our planet and others? How does it work? And what exactly is it? It's magma
1: when it's underground. It's lava when it gets to the surface. And the main type of volcanism is basaltic.
0: That is high in iron and magnesium and relatively low in silica.
1: So basaltic volcanism, if you can picture a uh, Hawaiian lava flow, it flows nice and smoothly. It kind of looks like a stream of molten rock, and that's the most uh, kind of primitive type of lava. And we find this on many planets. You know, there was a time where there were active volcanoes on the Moon and Mercury, and we suspect that there might still be active volcanoes maybe on Mars, maybe on Venus, definitely on Io.
0: Io, the innermost of Jupiter's four largest moons, is the most volcanically active object in the solar system that we know about. Thanks to tidal heating caused by Jupiter's massive gravity and gravitational interactions with the other large moons, Io's surface is covered with hundreds of volcanoes, and the lavas they erupt have a basaltic composition. So, is that the only kind there is? Not everywhere.
1: Now, on Earth, we also get other types of lava flows. We get uh, rhyolitic lava flows and andesitic lava flows. They have a higher viscosity, and so they are not as fluid. Viscosity
0: is a way of describing resistance to flow. Think of how swirlable water is compared to, say, honey, which is thousands of times more viscous. In an eruption, how runny the lava is affects how fast and far lava flows travel and the types of volcanic surfaces and structures they end up building. The broad, domed, shield volcanoes of the Big Island have been built up over time by low-viscosity basaltic flows, while the steep, cone-shaped stratovolcanoes of Japan and the Pacific Northwest and science fair projects everywhere are characteristic of more viscous lavas. What causes the difference?
1: Things like silica content, because the more silica in a lava flow, the longer strands of molecules, it gets kind of stickier, these molecules can... uh kind of get stuck up on each other it's also a factor of, of temperature the hotter a lava flow the more fluid it's going to be um, also things like volatile content because um, as a lava flow is extruded um, the the pressure on it is lowered and you get uh, gases coming out they're being exhaled from the lava itself and so the bubbles that form in the lava can affect its viscosity too
0: the different types of lava contain different amounts of silica, and the more tangled chains of silicon dioxide you add, the more viscous your lava will be. But where does this silica come from?
1: In general, basaltic lava is a result of direct melting of the mantle, in a first order definition. And we get other compositions because sometimes other things get mixed up into this. So if we look at continental hotspots, so if you have a what we expect are mantle plumes underneath the crust, and they heat, heat up the bottom of the crust, and then they do this, they melt the crust. And so you get what may have originated as some semi- kind of basaltic material will mix with a, maybe some sedimentary rocks or maybe some metamorphic rocks, and this is gonna change the composition of the lava. And often this changes by adding more silica, and this is sometimes why we get eruptions with, with higher silica contents.
0: The specific composition of each lava depends on what happened to it on its way up to the surface, so studying lava flows can tell us a lot about what's going on down there and what we might expect in the future.
1: Lava flows teach us about the history of volcanoes, so a volcanic history of an area. If we study old lava flows that were in place thousands of years ago, if we study them and learn about their ages and their extent, then we can learn if maybe You know, a volcano that hasn't been active in a long time, if it might become active again. One reason we care about lava flows is because they can affect communities.
0: Hazard mitigation is one good reason to study lava flows, and that means understanding how they move, where they might go, and what's going on as they cool over time. Lava flows, they're only going to
1: flow until they cool to a certain amount. Because as lava flows cool, they they get stickier, you get these silica chains that develop as crystals form and as you get glass inside the lava flow. Lava flows lose heat primarily from two locations. So it's going to conduct heat into the substrate. It's going to also, from the surface of the lava flow, it's going to radiate heat into the atmosphere wind that moves over the top of the lava flow so any any air movement is going to take heat away Uh, in addition the lava flow is going to heat up the air around it you know hot air then rises so the hot air is going to move away from the lava flow and so as the lava flow cools you've probably seen videos where the lava flow is is black on the top but it's still moving and that's because it takes a while for that crust to actually become
0: brittle and solid the crusty layer that forms on top, where the cooling is the fastest, rides on top of the red hot, molten interior, making for some pretty interesting textures and behaviors.
1: It's kind of fun when you're around an active lava flow. Uh, you know, it, it kind of extrudes sometimes, you know, especially in Hawaii, you have these very slow flows that kind of trickle out. You know, so you'll have a lobe that is in place, and then it'll slowly, you'll get this crust on the outside that's kind of elastic, but kind of brittle in some parts, and it'll build up pressure underneath because you start getting this crust and as more lava is being moved into this space, so it expands and then eventually it cools to a point where it can't expand anymore and you'll have a breakout. So you'll have another little lobe develop and the same thing happens over and over.
0: And if you're in the right place at the right time and taking proper precautions, you can probe some of these lava properties for yourself. Literally. When you first look at it, you know, it looks like a
1: rock, but if you take a stick and poke it, then it actually, you can see that it actually gives and bends kind of like a plastic, and it gets to a point where you can break through it and maybe create your own little lobes.
0: That's something that Rumpf gained lots of experience with during her grad school days at the University of Hawaii.
1: I've probably been to the Kilauea Lava Flows um, eight or ten times. It's one of those things you have to be careful about. I've also created Lava Flows in the lab, so that's another another time you get to play with them.
0: Setting aside, for now, the logistics of making lava in the lab, why would you even want to if you could go out in the field and study the real thing? For a couple of reasons. So, for one, yes, you
1: can access lava in the field, but it's not always easy to access. So sometimes... You know, especially at Kilauea, the active parts of the lava flow might be a good four-mile hike from any roads, which means you have to carry all of your equipment over this rough terrain for
0: the four miles, which is is not easy hiking. The lava surface is sharp and glassy. It's easy to twist an ankle if you're not careful, and it's very, very hot. Another
1: reason is because lava flows in the field are are highly unpredictable. So, you know, a lava flow, they have these fields and they kind of break out, and you can kind of guess where you think it's going to go. But it doesn't always, it rarely does what you think it's going to do, you know, so once we, we tried to deploy an instrument to get some measurements, we wanted the lava to roll over this box that had embedded thermocouples in it so we could measure heat transfer from the lava flow into the box as the lava flow heated it up, you know, and at the same time, you know, we wanted to set up a, a still camera to get, to get regular pictures of it and then also a thermal camera to get thermal pictures of the lava flow as it was being in place. And we saw a breakout, we thought we had the opportunity. And then all of a sudden, what we thought was a nice slow breakout just started gushing out. It was this huge breakout. We knew we would have to get all the equipment out in time, so we had to very quickly pull the box and get out of the way before uh, the box was destroyed and didn't actually give us any information. You also run the risk of the lava flow not going where you think it's going to be. So you can also you know, set up instruments in anticipation of the lava flow coming that way, and then the lava flow stalls or goes in a different direction. And so the advantage of the lab is that you can tell the lava flow where to go. We can decide how much lava we want to be in place, at what rate, and on what material. And so that's really a freedom you don't have in the field, where it's really up to Mother Nature.
0: To make lava in the lab, you have to have a furnace that can melt rocks. That means it has to reach temperatures higher than a thousand degrees Celsius. Not the kind of thing that's easy to find. Or is it?
1: As part of my dissertation at the University of Hawaii, I went to the art department there and, you know, because they have these facilities for melting iron and bronze so they can get up to the right temperatures, they were gas furnaces in the ground and we had a crucible that could melt about uh, four to five liters of lava. So we would do our own smaller scale experiments with actually melting the lava.
0: It turns out that to make lava in the lab, you need art as well as science, and nowhere is that more apparent than at the Syracuse Lava Project, a collaboration between Assistant Professor of Art Bob Wysocki and Professor of Earth Sciences Jeff Carson.
1: As far as I know, the Syracuse lab is the only one that does it to this scale. Where you have, You know, you can have several hundred pounds of lava at a time. And he has this facility, and now scientists can go to use the facility to make lava flows and to study lava flows and to look at how they interact with under different environments and with different substrates. And
0: so that's one way to study lava in the lab, but as Rumpf explains, it's not the only way. You can learn a lot about lava flows without melting any rocks at all.
1: What we're trying to do at Columbia or at Lamont-Durney Earth Observatory is... Uh, create our own little mini lava flows using analog materials. So the advantage of analog materials is that you can find materials that you know can kind of behave similarly to lava flows at temperatures that are not dangerous. They're very small scale, so they're easy to clean up and start over again. It's very easy to control a lot of the variables when you're doing these. So. We've done some experiments with corn syrup and some experiments with polyethylene glycol. We, um, it's PEG 600 and it's uh, it's a wax. It, it actually, uh, it kind of has the consistency of coconut oil. It's melting temperature is uh, just below room temperature. So it actually solidifies when it gets a little bit uh, cooler than room temperature, around 18, 18 to 20 Celsius. And it's, it's translucent when it's a liquid, it's opaque when it's solid, and it's, it's a lot easier to work with than real lava because, you know, we have a lot of it. If we mess up an experiment, we can redo one. It's, it's not dangerous, it's, uh, it's, you know, inert. And then we can do a series of controlled experiments in the laboratory in a way that's much more difficult with, with real lava.
0: Using a tank with a plexiglass sloping floor, Rumph and her colleagues make miniature wax flows that mimic the textures and behaviors of their larger lava counterparts.
1: So what we're doing to start is looking at different substrate types that the lava flow would go over. So on this slope, we've created different beds or substrate beds. And some things are, you know, we can use sandpaper. So sandpaper has different grain sizes. Um, You know, you can use a, a 20 is a very coarse grain size sandpaper, you know, versus a 120, which is a more fine sandpaper. So that's kind of a good analog for flowing over maybe, you know, sand versus boulders, because these lava flows we create in the lab are only about a centimeter thick.
0: From wax to melted rocks to real red-hot lava in the field, there are lots of ways to investigate this force of nature. So, what's the best part? Ooh. The best part is is playing with the lava. (laughs) It is cool. Thank you for listening to the Physics Central podcast. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and you can find more information on lava and links to the projects we talked about on our website, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com.